0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman.
1: And I'm Eve Simmons.
0: And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have
1: to. This week we're asking, amid a global shortage of Ozempic, which patients should and shouldn't be allowed to have the weight loss drug?
0: As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So, if you have a suggestion or a question for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at Med Minefield. Now, any regular listeners to this show and anyone who's interested in this subject will already know Ozempic is the brand name or one of the brand names for Semaglutide, the revolutionary weight loss jab that uh, has. Caused a huge stampede. It's been called the holy grail because if you inject yourself with it once a week, the weight just drops off. The
1: Hollywood secret.
0: Oh, yes. Well, Hollywood stars are supposed to be on it. Very slender Hollywood stars are supposed to be on it.
1: I like how when any celebrity, usually an actor, has lost lots of weight in a short space of time, everyone automatically, well, they're obviously on it as MPIC.
0: Well, I mean, they probably are aren't they, to be honest i mean i 've read that it's stylists kind of buy it in and and sort of say if they 're not fitting into their dresses and such like here, take this love and uh, <laughs>
1: exactly like that
0: <laughs> take this love and you'll you'll be sorted for the red carpet. But, you know, I mean, the drug was initially, I mean, semaglutide and similar GLP-1 receptor agonists, as they're known, have been around for more than a decade. And initially they were rolled out for treatment of diabetes, type 2 diabetes specifically. The condition often develops due to excess weight. Mm. And when people become much bigger, fat can accumulate in the liver, they think, and that causes a dysregulation of the hormones that control blood sugar. Uh, Blood sugar rises. Weight loss is a way of reversing that situation or at least making it easier to control. Mm. And so they started giving people these drugs and they work on the brain. They stop you from wanting to eat. uh, or so they stop you from wanting to eat so much. I should say. They
1: make you feel fuller for longer, right? Well,
0: I think that they they work on the reward pathways of the brain. So, you know, when you... I mean, we talk about this regularly. Um, I'll come in and I'll say, I ate an entire tub of ice cream last night.
1: And I'll say, you go, girl.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And... You know that feeling you get when you're, you know, I mean, it's just uh, I I can't think of anything remotely bad to say about doing that, but there's a spectrum of that, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And and eating certain foods does make us feel good, Mm. and um, you know we associate that with feeling better, so or we associate that with celebrating something, or Mm. you know, comfort, or for various reasons people overeat. It's there there is a kind of psychological process, and I guess
1: unlike other diet methods, this sort of considers the fact that on a lot of occasions it's To do with emotional eating because if you then if you're not getting that reward, mm. then perhaps it sort of stops that cycle,
0: yeah. So I've, I've probably got slightly ahead of myself. The, the, the drug initially they were looking at ways to control blood sugar outside of giving people insulin for, for people with big bodies and mm. type 2 diabetes, but there was this other effect that they were seeing in that people had less cravings mm. and and they then rolled out to, oh, I should also say in the in the diabetes population, it clearly showed that weight loss achieved and the reversal of, of some of the symptoms and, and poor blood sugar control led to fewer heart attacks mm. um, and other benefits such as that. And they, they then set up these very well-designed uh, studies, clinical trials, to test it on people with no other specific conditions, so just for weight loss. Mm. And patients in these trials seem to very consistently lose about fifth of their body weight Mm, so this is designed for people with obesity Mm -hmm. and these people have much larger bodies and so losing a fifth of body weight can be quite beneficial Mm. especially if you've got Problems that that can arise from that situation. So, you know, arthritic knees mm-hmm. or hips or skin problems or you know, I mean, there's 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 many many things that, that can kind of grind you down. And you know, I mean, for instance, people cannot be eligible for surgery because mm-hmm. they are, are a certain weight that makes it too risky. And and getting to them to a lower weight can help that. So, what these aren't and what has never been studied is. They're not drugs for people who aren't obese or very overweight mm. to get slim. Mm. And and that appears to be somehow, somewhere along the line, the message has got out that these drugs can get you thin or keep you thin. Mm. And it seems... Certainly that if you look at social media, there's an amount of rhetoric that this is a a slimming drug when in fact it's an obesity treatment.
1: Mm. What I found fascinating was that I believe this was a a situation that was happening over in the US because as far as we're concerned with NICE, with the health authorities guidance, this is only available for patients with at least one weight-related health problem? That's quite
0: an open thing for NICE to have said. So you're talking about the March NICE guidance that said that basically opened up the possibility of semaglutide in certain doses to be given for just being overweight, whereas previously semaglutide had only been available to people with diabetes as well. Mm. And that was the big change that happened this year.
1: Oh, but you have to have one weight-related health problem. That can said. be anything.
0: That's what they've said right. for the... The NHS, so that's how NICE have come up with their Mm cost-effectiveness, because if you've got, you know, and that could be arthritic knees, or it could be diabetes, or it could be a skin condition, Mm. or it could be something else, or it could be the need to have surgery. Mm. And that's how they've come up with their cost-effectiveness proviso, Mm. which is what they do. Um, But the actual drugs are licensed, so the newer drug, so semaglutide comes under different brand names, Mm. and the older version for diabetics was called Ozempic. And the newer version, which is being marketed just for the weight loss, mm. is called Wegovy. Right. And the Wegovy version is the one that's licensed for weight loss, whereas Ozempic is only licensed for people with diabetes.
1: So how are people without diabetes weight? getting hold of Ozempic?
0: If you're a doctor, you can prescribe off-label. Off-label. It's perfectly acceptable for a doctor because it's the same drug inside the, the injector right. pen. It's perfectly acceptable for a doctor to say you know there's enough evidence which there is for me to safely prescribe this drug, which has got the same active ingredient we we know yep. what it would do okay and and so that's yeah called off label prescribing and it's it's a perfectly acceptable and thing and over to here do.
1: that's happening privately yes that's correct
0: it wouldn't happen on the NHS routinely,
1: mm.
0: although I'm not entirely sure if specialist weight loss clinics may have been offering it. Mm. But specialist weight loss clinics are very few and far between. They reckon about 400,000 diabetics take um, Ozempic mm. in the UK. And the weight loss clinics have the capacity to treat about 25,000 more. So if you think about the obese population of 10 million or whatever mm. it is, it's not that many people that, that really have access to it. And the extreme interest in the drug globally has meant that the one factory in Denmark that produces some has basically struggled to provide Uh, that that drug there's a massive shortage no Mm. one can get it Mm. and you know ellie cannon our gp columnist wrote about the problems and asked readers if they'd had trouble getting it and we we had a torrent of of emails from diabetic readers who said that they had been told that they couldn't get it and they were furious Mm. about the idea that people were using it just to lose weight they were saying i need it to control my diabetes my diabetes puts me at risk of a heart attack Mm. Whereas you know other people just want it for cosmetic reasons, they just want it. They they just want to look better mm. and feel better. And I mean, it's an interesting uh, conundrum there. And uh, I mean, the MHRA have stepped in, our regulator, drug regulator, and have said. So, so I should probably say to confuse matters more, Wagovi is not available in the UK. Despite the ruling by Nice, they've never managed to ramp up production of Wagovi enough to supply the UK with it. So we only have a Zempic. Right. In the UK. And once they sort out their production system and factories, which will not happen for a year and a bit, mm. then all the drugs will be available. Mm. Um, but until then, we've got this very limited supply of just the Ozempic, I believe. And the MHRA have said no prescribing off license, full stop. Mm. So that means no one without diabetes should be prescribed it. Mm. We've been online this week and found that private clinics online are still prescribing it to people who don't have uh, diabetes. We posed as would-be patients and uh, went through the the consultation process, which is basically filling in an online form, ticked all the boxes saying no pre-existing conditions, no other conditions, no diabetes, etc. I just want to lose weight. And they were happy, two of the the four most well-known clinics, online clinics offering this, were happy to send us as long as we paid about 250 quid per month supply.
1: Just backtracking slightly. So on the NHS, it is permitted to prescribe it to patients with a- who don't have diabetes but have a weight-related health problem. So does that mean that the MHRA has ruled that that can't happen either?
0: Yes, it's confusing. So the ruling in March would have covered... Ozempic being prescribed off licence, right? Because it's still semaglutide, and that's what it says in the nice guidance, right? But it would be an off-label prescription because they would have to choose Ozempic because there is no Wegovy in Britain,
1: right? Okay, so you shouldn't be prescribed it on the NHS if you don't have diabetes either, right now.
0: Right now, mm. the MHRI has said to prioritise diabetes patients. Mm you're not allowed to prescribe semaglutide or you're not allowed to prescribe any GLP-1-RAs, which Mm. is the term for these, off-label, which basically will mean that no one except for diabetics can be prescribed it.
1: Okay. complicated
0: situation Mm. but i think the ethical question is who deserves it more you know is someone who needs to lose weight who's who's very big and
1: perhaps at risk of diabetes you could
0: perhaps at risk of diabetes or just absolutely at their wits end from having tried to diet and failed um you know and and blaming themselves and you know feeling dreadful and, and lethargic and You know, I mean, it's a a vicious circle, isn't it? Mm. That If you feel people who are very overweight avoid going out and exercising, for instance, and, you know, it compounds the problem. So why would someone maybe with diabetes who's overweight be more deserving? You know, is it right? And and I guess doctors are going to have to make this very difficult decision for quite a while now that some people deserve it. And some people don't.
1: Well, I'd argue it is a medicine, it's a medical treatment, and therefore it's a treatment that should be for a condition.
0: But doctors who treat these conditions that agree obesity that is obesity a, is a condition. condition. And I think let's let's have a chat to a doctor now who has been at the forefront of, of research and treatment of patients and is very much of the belief that, that obesity in itself is a neurological condition and these drugs treat that on the line now, we have Professor Carol Larue, obesity expert at Ulster University. Professor Larue, thanks very much for finding time. Hi, thank you to very much us. for
2: setting this up. Uh,
0: we're talking today about the the current situation: the semaglutide, uh, the GLP one R A uh, shortages, which are global, and the fact that doctors who are treating patients with these medicines are having to make some very difficult decisions at the moment in the face of these shortages in the in the UK our drugs regulator has issued an alert saying that only diabetics basically can be prescribed uh, GLP1 uh, drugs and that no new patients should be initiated on on these drugs and also that the patients who aren't perhaps meeting their clinical goals on these drugs be taken off them so it's quite a tough tough situation at the moment. I mean obviously th- these drugs can help a huge number of people. Is it right do you think that only diabetics are going to be able to access it for quite some time? I mean this this shortage is going to last for more more than a year apparently.
2: So you are correct, you know, we are in a difficult situation and I think the ethos of everybody is to do the right thing and I have a real sympathy with the patients, you know, with the clinicians prescribing it but also with the regulator. Um, But if we break it down logically, the ultimate problem here is that we don't have enough supply of the medication. Now, the company is doing their utmost to produce more medication, but that is going to be the single most impactful thing that we can do to change this. Now, what we should not do is in this interim period, which we hope will only be a few months, is to create more problems for our patients. So I would suggest that we need to understand that this is a short-term problem, that there is short-term solutions that we need to do. But what we should not do is create permanent scars by, for example, suggesting that one disease is more important than another disease now can i just I can i just stop you there yep.
0: uh, y- you you talk about one disease not being uh more important than another disease and yes. and that's because and this just came up before you came online eve was asking me about whether or not obesity was seen as as a disease itself and that's that's something that that you strongly believe isn't it
2: Well, obesity we now know in the UK have really led the world in showing that this is a disease of the middle part of the brain, the part of the brain that you and I cannot control by thinking. So we are now thinking of obesity as a neurological disease. There are nerves in the middle part the subcortical areas of the brain that control how much fat your body wants to store. And the UK has led the research in understanding how this works, what the mechanisms are, And also, now we have medications that work in that exact part of the brain to treat this disease. And when you treat the disease, it comes under control, and and therefore, it, it meets all the criteria. Now, there's many governments in the world that have recognized obesity as a disease. The UK government has not recognized obesity as a disease. That's not because they're bad people. It's just because they think that by recognizing it as a disease, they will reduce agency of people who have obesity. That's an ideological argument rather than a physiological argument. But in good time and sooner rather than later all governments including the UK government will recognise the science because that's what we do is we follow the science so obesity is a disease type 2 diabetes is a disease both of these diseases need to be treated appropriately
0: interestingly when you're talking about government our former PM Boris Johnson admitted that he'd taken Ozempic for weight loss, that is, so an off-label prescription. But uh, I think Eve had a question.
1: Yeah, Professor Leroux, I have so many questions for you. I guess my first one is, where do you draw the line? If you start giving this drug to people who are maybe very overweight, verging on obese, to prevent presumably weight-related illnesses, there's this risk that you're going to be giving it to everyone who is, you know, slightly a bit big? How do you, how do you know where the risk starts?
2: That's a very important question because right now um, there are too many people that have the disease of obesity and no government in the world can afford to treat everybody that have this disease. But... This is not new. We've done exactly the same in 2000 when we had incredibly good new drugs called statins. And these drugs were so expensive at the time that we could not afford to treat everybody with high cholesterol. And what we do in medicine is we triage. We say, who are the patients that would benefit most from this treatment? And in the UK, we are very lucky because we have NICE as an organization that take these decisions you know, without emotion. They basically look at the evidence. They look at randomized controlled trial evidence. And so what NICE has said when they looked at semaglutide as a treatment, but also at liraglutide previously, they said the patients that would benefit most are those patients at highest risk of developing complications of the disease of obesity. Now, in liraglutide, they define that as uh, developing type 2 diabetes. In semaglutide, they define that as high cardiovascular risk. So, and that I think is the right ethos again because these drugs are not weight loss drugs, these are health gain drugs. But we have to work out which patients stand to benefit the most. So these drugs are not going to help people to lose a couple of you know, you know, pounds or even a couple of stones so they can fit into a different you know clothes size, but it will help people reduce their risk of developing diabetes. Um, and other complications of obesity. And I think that is, that is the right thing to do is to say, let's start off by people that would benefit most by using these really expensive treatments that we have now.
1: I have to also ask you about the side effects of these drugs, because they're not to be dismissed. I mean, patients who have been taking them have reported everything from nausea and diarrhoea to full-on digestive disorders. I've read about something called cycling vomiting syndrome, which sounds awful. Abdominal pain, headache, fatigue, indigestion, dizziness. You know, are we are we weighing up the risks versus the benefits enough?
2: You're correct, and my old professor of pharmacology always taught us there's only two types of drugs, drugs that don't work and drugs that have side effects. So all drugs have side effects, and these are no different. The challenge for us is to manage these side effects and to reduce the side effects so that patients can take them in the long term. Now, there's two aspects to this. The one aspect is it's incredible the amount of side effects that people will put up with if they have the disease of obesity. And this may be a self-stigmatization where people think they have to suffer, they have to feel nauseous, you know, for these drugs to work. What we now know is that the nausea plays zero role in the amount of weight that people lose. Some people who have incredible nausea lose no weight. Some people that have no nausea are the ones that lose the most weight. So this is a side effect that we must manage and we can manage it very simply in clinic by just reducing the dose escalation. So rather than going really quickly, increasing the dose and making people feeling nauseous and vomiting we can just reduce the dose and that's what we do in clinic and that works pretty well so i don't want people to have um, side effects because then nobody's going to take it you know as they should in the long term there's also been However, concern
1: about suicidal thoughts
2: correct and again if we look at the best treatment we have obesity which is bariatric surgery and we've had that treatment for the last 50 years and that treatment provides about 25% weight loss. What we see after bariatric surgery is a fourfold increase in suicide. We don't understand exactly why that is um, but when we dig into the data what is becoming clear is is that surgery per se doesn't have a mechanism that causes suicide. And these medications don't have a a mechanism that would suggest that it would drive suicide. But you could imagine if you're somebody living with a disease of obesity... And you go on and you do lose 25% of your weight. And somebody has told you that your life is going to be magical if you lose 25% of your weight because somebody has sold you the idea of before and after photos. And, you know, all your problems is due to the disease of obesity. Now, suddenly when you are 25% less light um, or less heavy rather... Now what happens is you wake up next to the same partner, you drive the same car to the same job, and it turns out that actually the disease of obesity wasn't the cause of everything that was wrong in your life. And, you know, but it just comes down, again, to the stigma associated with obesity. So we should not overpromise, and we should recognize that people who are living with obesity, you know, have a lot of things to face, including stigma from society that we have to address. So in summary... I don't think there's a physiological mechanism that would link these medications with increasing suicide. However, I think the disease of obesity and how we treat people and what we drive expectations, that may change, you know, how people think about it. So, so it is complex, but it's also not that difficult to understand, you know, if we actually are just working through the science in a logical way.
0: You mentioned statins. I mean, statins are one of the most commonly taken medicines. There's around 8 million people in in the UK on them. You could double that number if you had everyone who was eligible actually taking them. Would you like to see these GLP-1 drugs as routinely taken as something like statins?
2: So I think we need more treatments for the disease of diabetes. We need more treatments for the disease of obesity. I think this is a class of medication that is really effective in a large number of patients. But there is also a substantial number of people, and that could be 2 in 10 or even 3 in 10 people, Um, who have these medications and who do not respond optimally. Um, So what that tells us is that obesity is unlikely to be one disease. There's probably multiple diseases that lead to increases in adipose tissue and fat cells, and therefore we need more than one treatment. So we need more nutritional therapies, more pharmacotherapies, and more surgical therapies if we're really going to make the difference. This is a really effective class of medication. It's a really safe class of medication. And it's very reasonable for people to start on the medication. But if they do not respond, they should not continue. And the interesting thing is we can tell within three months. So if somebody hasn't lost, we would say approximately a stone in the first three months, um, then they are not an optimal responder to this treatment. And hence, you know, we may need to consider stopping this and trying something else. So. I think it's a reasonable place to start, I think, because it's the best we have, it's the safest drugs that we have, but it's very important to say not everybody is going to respond and we need, therefore, more treatment. Having said all of that, there is the majority of patients in the world and certainly in the UK that do not want to take medications for obesity because the patients don't think this is a disease and you know why would you take a treatment a medication you know for the rest of your life if you don't think you have a disease now that may also change you know as time goes on and science goes on but it's unreasonable to think that everybody that has the disease of obesity would want to have medications but what we need to do is we need to connect those patients that do want to have a treatment for the disease that do respond to these treatments with these treatments
1: i just wanted to pick you up on something you said about taking a medication potentially for the rest of your life that was something that you said i, I believe yesterday in a, in a media briefing that was um picked yeah. up and 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 uh got a lot of coverage this morning is that something you really believe that if you start taking these glp1 drugs that, that you should actually just be on them for the rest of your life
2: yes yeah, so, uh, we always say in science we don't believe we think Um, you know so from that point of view if we look at any other chronic disease you know say for example asthma and we have a really effective treatment for the asthma what we will never do is treat somebody effectively with inhalers or even oral medication for asthma and once you have the asthma under control you would stop the inhalers and ask them just to be really motivated and breathe through their you know bronchial restriction so or we wouldn't give somebody a blood pressure medication Now we understand hypertension is a chronic disease, we get their hypertension under control and then once we have that under control, stop the medication and then say to them, just you know don't become anxious and increase your blood pressure because we understand the biological mechanisms of these diseases and what we have now is medications that really address those biological mechanisms. We need to be clear that you know if we take medications such as the GLP-1 analogue We do not make patients more intelligent and we do not make them more motivated. What we do is we treat the disease of obesity and the disease comes under control. And that's why what you would find very often is that, you know, if two partners that live in exactly the same environment um, and same household, they take the same treatment, the one will have an incredible response and the second one won't respond at all. It is not the smart people that listen to us that lose a lot of weight and the people that don't listen that don't lose weight because it's biology. And I think that is the scientific principles that we're working on. So saying that somebody will have to take a treatment for the rest of their lives, you know, that's just what we do for any other chronic disease. Now, these medications that we have right now are incredible for twenty twenty three, but they will be outdated by 2025 and 2026. We will have even better treatments then. Um, So I think the concept that you will take this specific drug for the rest of your life, I don't think that is necessarily correct because that wasn't true for the first ACE inhibitors we had or the first statins we had. But you will have to take a treatment for the rest of your life if this is a biological disease.
0: Well, Professor LaRue, thank you very much for finding time to join us so that's a good question Eve and basically it's not a cure Mm. it just controls the condition
1: and it's actually really interesting because I was thinking I talk a lot about antidepressants (laughs) if anyone who's ever listened to this podcast will know and it made me think well it's the same for how I see drugs that people take to protect their mental health I believe that you know, it's similar to what he was saying about blood pressure. Often you see people take antidepressants, they feel better and then they come off them. And then lo and behold, in a few months mm. time, they start to well, it's work the, It's the
0: same with statins. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very common story. And it's I, totally... I, I interviewed a, a guy a few years back who had given up mm. statins in just those circumstances. His doctor was telling me that this is a very common scenario, that people have a heart attack they get given all the medication, they feel better, and uh, then they stop taking all their medication, and then they have another heart attack.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? But it, it but when you when you put it like that in terms of asthma, you wouldn't just chuck away someone's inhalers when well, they this haven't is, had a I think
0: we've talked about this before. I think that there's a very much a kind of there's a a moral barometer Mm. on all of these things and we don't judge people for being asthmatic we don't judge people so much for high blood pressure yeah um i think you know when it comes to statins there's certainly a moral element isn't there because it is you know having high cholesterol is linked in many people to diet and and, you know Mm. there are people who think you should just eat a mediterranean diet
1: but this this idea that you're somehow more of a sort of capable being if you're able to not take medication is just ludicrous as far as i'm concerned
2: well
0: next i think we should hear from someone who's taking the medication
1: on the line now is Jeanette, who takes GLP-1 drugs for weight loss. She doesn't have diabetes. Jeanette, can you tell me about when you first started taking... What, is it Ozempic that you take?
3: Yes, Ozempic.
1: Ah, okay. And so when was that prescribed? I started
3: it on the 11th of May.
1: And what led you to being prescribed that?
3: Well, I, I wasn't prescribed it. I went to a private clinic. Right. Um, I, I'd read about it and I thought, oh my goodness... The thing that everybody who's overweight has been wanting for many years. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. Um, and my daughter had said, well, why don't you try it? And
1: mm. you know,
3: she's highly qualified in dietetics, etc. So I thought, well, I will. So I did.
1: And is weight something that has been a concern for you for a long time?
3: Oh, most of my life. Hmm.
1: And you've tried diets and exercise routines and everything. Yes. Kind of well, I'm not big on exercise. <laughs> But don't worry. Please. Some of us I'm, aren't. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that.
3: Yes, yeah, sorry.
1: <laughs> and you don't have any weight-related health problems at all? You, it was just for weight loss that you w- wanted to take it?
3: Well, I have health problems, which obviously are never helped by being very overweight. Hmm. But um, it's not like any of the doctors have said, you must lose weight and this is what we're going to do to help you. Hmm. So I've got to try and help myself.
1: Hmm. And I don't know if you're, I'm sure you're aware of this shortage of the drugs and that the the MHRA have now said that patients shouldn't be prescribed it unless they have diabetes. Are you worried that you're going to lose the medication?
3: Well, I finished the the course and I'm afraid it just didn't do anything for me. In 10 weeks, I only lost £9. So I I won't be paying £200 again for nothing. I can lose a pound a week myself
1: how much were you expecting to lose
3: well they tell you that you're going to lose lots of weight and they have a the, this particular clinic has a web page mm. and there's lots of nice things put on by people who it's, they're losing lots of weight I mean I I know that it's not good to lose lots of weight quickly mm. uh, I don't want to be left with loads of saggy skin um however you know, I was expecting to lose more than nine pounds in 10 weeks.
1: Do you, I mean, you obviously haven't had the effect on you that you desired, but do you think that it's obviously been very successful for a lot of other people? Do you think it should be available for people who are struggling with their weight? Perhaps they are, you know, struggling with obesity, living with obesity and and finding it very difficult to lose weight, but maybe they don't have diabetes. Do you think that it should be available for those patients?
3: Well, I think it should. I mean, obviously this is, Something that when they, when they developed the drug, it was specific for diabetes. And this has come out afterwards that, oh, actually, it helps people who have weight problems. Um, so I don't see why it shouldn't. People with weight problems have got as many probably health problems as anybody. But so long as the people who need it for diabetes are getting, getting sufficient, I think it would be nice if they made more so that there was, is, there was enough to go around. Jeanette, can I
0: just ask, so you
3: took it for
0: two months, but that you didn't wanna, you didn't want to keep taking it is that right
3: well i just i mean it it wasn't an easy ride I did everything I, I, I did everything I was told to do yeah um, but I was having a lot of um, you know the side effects of nausea and bloating and bowel problems, if you like, and I thought, oh i can't imagine being on this indefinitely if' I'm, if you're going to suffer with these side effects mm. I would have carried on with it had I lost more weight but I thought it's a lot of money to pay each time and the clinic's never been in touch anyway it's oh, like really? well they've had, they've had my money and I've never heard a thing from them I did think that they might just contact me to say how was it going yeah. you know but obviously they know that I haven't gone back to get a second lot H- how much were you paying I, I paid 200 pounds for it
0: and that's uh, £200 for a month?
3: Well, for the for the amount that you get, um, one pen, and it's it lasts you 8 to 10 weeks. So I managed to, yeah, yeah. So in that, it's not a lot. £10 a week, you think, that's fine, that's doable. But when you've got a lot of weight to lose, as I have, that could go on for months and months. If you're losing the weight, you don't mind so much. But if you're not, you do.
1: Jeanette, what kind of effect did you notice in terms of curbing your appetite? Was there a big change?
3: Well, I think because I felt nauseous a lot of the time. You don't want to. I mean, I would have an appetite and I'd think, oh, I could just eat such and such. But by the time, you know, you sat down to eat something, you didn't really want it. So I I expect that that was part of, yes, that was the effect it was having on me.
1: And when, Um, when you finished the course, did you continue that sort of apathy towards food or or did it all the kind of cravings come back? Well
3: I'm seventy two so my appetite is decreasing, thankfully. And I'm consciously trying to carry on doing the things that I was doing when I was having the injections. So, you know, it's portion control. It's calorie control, if you like. But, I mean, I can do those things without having the injection. Mm.
0: Um, And 200 pounds, yeah. And have you continued to lose weight? Has your weight stayed the same or um, have you regained it?
3: It's sort of, I think I've put on about half a pound, actually. (laughs) I finished it um, a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, well, you know, but, I mean, I I get on the scales once a week and I think, right, I've got to do better than this. So... Mm. It's just a long slog though, isn't it? If you've got a lot to lose. yeah. Um, but I, I'm going to persevere because I know that it's, it's better for my health. I was very poorly last year and I nearly died. And this is one of the things that I need to do for myself mm. to help me. I want to live a bit longer. So, mm. you know, being overweight doesn't help anybody with anything, does it? Well,
0: we wish you the absolute best of luck. And thank you so much for finding time to talk to us. Certainly in the clinical trials, the nausea tended to pass, according to the drug Mm. company, which of course they would say.
1: (laughs) This is what worries me. I mean, people will put up with a lot to be thin. But
0: again, watch out for saying that because losing a fifth of your body weight if you are a BMI of 40 is not being thin.
1: Okay, well, not being thin, but losing weight, the association of weight loss. And if you think of somebody who is maybe has lived with obesity for many, many years and is kind of, you know, at the extreme end of the scale and has probably spent many, many years desperately chasing this Dream of being able to lose at least some of the weight.
0: Again, slightly judgmental language there. The dream, like it's it's an aspirational thing. If you're very obese and suffering from all kinds of health problems, to want to improve your health. I mean, I think Jeanette's d- was was a, a good example. She just says she wants to live a bit longer.
1: No, absolutely. But what I'm and saying is it's,
0: that's not her dream. That's the very human desire
1: of course but when you want something you yeah, will put up but, with
0: okay cancer
1: well is that a fair comparison you you're saying you put up with chemotherapy you
0: put up with very extreme side effects because mm. you want to live longer
1: but not for the potentially for the rest of your life
0: No, and obviously Jeanette had weighed up the risks and benefits herself. And it sounds like she was in what you'd say, what Professor LaRue was talking about, this uh, third of patients who don't respond really to Mm. to the medicine. Um, Or maybe if
1: she'd have carried on taking it, she would have responded more or it would have just been gradual for He said
0: in two to three months, you can tell.
1: Oh, really interesting.
0: Um, And...
1: Also sounds like terrible monitoring from the private clinic that she was under.
0: Well, surprise, surprise. You know, I mean, we we discovered this week when we were signing mm. up, they ask you a couple of questions and get you to send a picture of your feet on a scale. And then <laughs> as long as you can input your... And you
1: can cut out your face.
0: As long as you can input your credit card details, I don't think they care. Mm. But it would lend itself to this idea that, that, yes, what's needed is another option for Jeanette Because... I hate the idea that that she is you know in some way going to blame herself mm. for her ill health when there's quite a lot of evidence now that uh, uh certainly that, that weight gain is a consequence of imbalances in the brain mm. Mm.
1: um
0: and it's not just because you're weak-willed or didn't try hard enough
1: and and potentially if there was a sort of army of tools that doctors could draw on it would reinforce that idea for patients that you have a a disease you have an illness that you can't control and therefore that's why there's lots of things that we have to help you
0: yeah i completely agree i completely agree and there will always be people that are going to say you know it's, it's all their fault and some people say you should never have a nose job or you should never take statins because you could go on a a lovely Mediterranean diet and and I just think Mm. all these people aren't really attempting to walk in another person's shoes
1: I think there's just so much sort of trauma from the diet pill scandals of the
0: 1960s and 1970s uh, not even that long ago I mean you know right up until well I mean there was one one drug that they're still flogging called I think it's ally and that's the one that if you take that
1: makes you pee yourself
0: Yes, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, well, if you if you eat too much fat, because you it stops you from absorbing fat, and so obviously it just runs right through you.
1: Oh. I mean, that's what's awful about this. Is like a lot of people who I've spoken to who have lived with obesity for a long time really struggle with the sort of this feeling of guilt and shame, and it's horrible. And mm. then you also have to put up with these like you know horrible, awful side effects, and it plays into that idea that it's a punishment and that it's, Mm. you know, you have to put up with these horrible things because you've got yourself into this situation. And I just...
0: I mean, Sarah Vine, who takes um, our colleague Sarah Vine, she doesn't suffer from any of those kind of side effects, although she does quite spookily say that she doesn't enjoy eating food at all anymore. But for her, it's worth it because Mm. of how absolutely miserable being overweight made her feel Mm, mm. Uh, so you know it swings around
1: and i guess you could say well that's what you need to deal with why is it that being overweight makes you feel so awful but then not everyone has all the money to spend on therapy
0: very true and it gets you back to this kind of you know healthy at every size argument which is you know it's a tough one as well isn't it because you know perhaps you're not healthy at every size
1: well uh i mean
0: certainly being very (sighs) underweight isn't healthy
1: no, but I think that the well, I mean some of those um dietitians in that space argue that it's about focusing on healthy behaviors and healthy changes in your life rather than just the sole goal of losing weight mm. and that as a as a byproduct of that, you do end up losing weight, but
0: mm. I anyway. think. I think Lizzo is, is a brilliant uh, role model in this space, personally. Mm, mm. And it, it really interests me that that whenever she posts clips of herself exercising or if she loses a bit of weight, people get furious and say she's somehow betraying uh, their healthy at every size, you know, the mm, body positive mm, movement. Mm, mm, mm. And I think you can be both. I think you can be body positive, like she is, yep. absolutely incredible musician mm. uh, you know uh, v- a virtuoso a star an amazing dancer great fashion
1: fabulous performer fabulous mm.
0: performer uh, you know she does have a bigger body. Mm. But, you know, whatever her personal story is, you know, she's exercising, she wants to be healthy. And that's what she said. She wants to be healthy. Yeah. And, and you know, if that does might, it might, you know, might well involve losing weight for her. She's not ever made that claim very specifically, mm. but she clearly is health conscious. Mm. So, you know, you you can be both. You can be body positive and want to do the best for your health and you know, possibly, you know, that that's going to involve losing weight if, if you manage to do that.
1: I have to say, I did really enjoy her TikTok series on um, all of the junk food that she ate while she was on her international tour. Oh, really? It was top notch. Actually, junk food is not the correct term and I did regret she... that. She just ate delicious food, but some of it was fried.
0: Sounds good to
1: me. And breaded. <laughs>
0: Well, that is all we have time for this week. You can read all about the GLP 1 drug shortages in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and all the latest health news, which you can consume in newspaper format on mailplus.co.uk or on the mail
1: app. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then.
0: Goodbye.